We pick it up tonight in the middle of Matthew chapter 6, which is sort of the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount comprises chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And it was this famous uh, sermon that Jesus delivered to his disciples, but we should understand it as being the disciples in the broader sense of the word. In other words, this does not seem that it was delivered just to the twelve. In the Gospel of Matthew, at least, the twelve aren't even chosen yet. And we're told that many people followed Jesus from many different places, and this is what he used to teach his followers. I suggested to us when we first came into the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 as well, that many elements of this sermon were probably things that Jesus preached on a regular basis in his itinerant ministry. Because it tells us in the Gospels that Jesus went from place to place, from town to town, from village to village, preaching and announcing the kingdom of God. And if there's anything wonderful and distinctive about the Sermon on the Mount, it's about how it communicates to us what the kingdom of God is all about. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day were anxiously awaiting a kingdom, but they thought of it mainly in terms of politics, in terms of military might, in terms of a new uh, political and social and economic order. Jesus says, no, I've come to bring a kingdom, and I am indeed a king. But my kingdom is spiritual, and my kingdom takes root in the transformed hearts of the men and the women who follow after me. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what the character of kingdom citizens is. We should remind ourselves, the Sermon on the Mount does not deal with salvation per se. It deals instead with the lives that saved people will live for, for the most part. This is what kingdom citizens look like. This isn't necessarily how to get into the kingdom of God. And so a lot of it contrasts the phoniness, the falseness of the religious structures of Jesus' day with the reality of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and an imitator of God. Now, coming into chapter 6, we covered the, the first part of the chapter last time we were together, and we saw how Jesus was going to deal with the basic duties, religious duties, I should say, that, that every Jewish person would feel responsible to perform in that day. And by the way, in this day as well. And those three basic duties were the giving of alms or charitable giving, number two, prayer, and number three would be fasting. Those three fundamental things were the marks of a pious or a religious Jew in Jesus' day. And by the way, they're still marks of pious or religious Jews today. And so Jesus talks about the contrast between the phony way to give unto others and the true way to give unto others. The phony way to pray and the true way to pray. And now as we come to verse 16, he's going to start talking about the phony way that people fast and the true way to make a fast before God. So let's take a look here. Verses 16, 17, and 18. He says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, again, Jesus begins this section by challenging his disciples 
when you fast. He's speaking of the fundamental spiritual practices of the people who are in his kingdom. Giving, praying, fasting. Clearly, you have to say here, Jesus assumed that his followers would fast. Now, some people wonder, is there a New Testament command for fasting? I don't immediately recall one to mind, do you? A New Testament command to fast. Yet there is a New Testament assumption that the followers of Jesus will fast. Now, the Old Testament commanded fasting. The Old Testament commanded fasting on the Day of Atonement. And during the exile, that is, when the people of the southern kingdom of Judah were forced out of their land and by the Babylonians, they were dispersed all over the Babylonian Empire, the Jewish people expanded the practice of fasting. Now, what is fasting? Well, there are some people doing a little study on the Greek word that's translated fasting here for us, uh, say that the implication here is simply a totally a total abstinence from food for a certain time. And, and this is what we have to understand. In the biblical perspective, fasting is abstaining from food. Now, th- there are people who have other kinds of fast. For example, in Roman Catholic practice, one would not eat meat on Friday, but only fish. And they say that is a form of fasting. They're fasting on Friday by not eating meat and only fish. I would have to say from a biblical perspective, that's not fasting. From a biblical perspective, fasting is not eating food and only drinking water. Now, there are forms of self-denial which may be valuable, right? There there are some people who say, well, I'm going to fast from all sweet or sugary things. I'm going to fast and drink only liquids. And listen, that's fine. Maybe you do it for spiritual reasons as a form of of self-denial. That's okay. Or or you do it perhaps for health reasons, whatever, great. But listen, I, I think we should restrict that term fasting for the denial of food and saying that you will drink only water. Um. Fasting is something good that was corrupted by the hypocrisy of the religious people in the days of Jesus. Now, I think it's fascinating to think about that. Is fasting a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a good thing to do this. But our corrupt natures can take something good and twist it into something bad. You know, a modern example of a good thing gone bad is the practice how people will dress nicely or or at one time they would dress nicely for church on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with it, right? It can be a nice uh, expression of reverence, right? I want to look nice. I'm going to the house of God. I'll dress up nice. But when the flesh gets in there and starts making it a fashion show, that's an entirely different thing, right? It's something good that can become something bad. And so what does Jesus do? He says, stop fasting altogether. No, he didn't say that at all. He said, listen, you go ahead and fast, but when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. I think fasting is a practice that's much neglected in the church today. There are not many people who regularly fast. I know that there are some. My own father-in-law, my wife's uh, uh, father, He's a man who is a very regular faster, and he would tell you that that this practice of fasting has helped him immensely in his Christian life. 
He makes a regular practice of a weekly or a couple times weekly basis, and then oftentimes through the year he'll take fast for several days of the week. And he would tell you that, that not only does it help him health-wise, but he would insist that's not the reason why he does it. He says the reason he does it is because he really believes it is beneficial for him spiritually and in drawing close to God. And I think fasting can do that. Fasting has a wonderful way of telling our body who's in charge. You know, if you want to think of man as being a three-part being, now I don't mean to ignite a theological controversy when I say that, because you might know, or maybe you don't know. If you don't know, it's probably better that you don't know. But there's a huge debate among some people in theological circles as to whether or not man is a two-part being or whether or not man is a three-part being. Is man a three-part being of body, soul, and spirit, or are we just a two-part being of body and soul or body and spirit? And believe me, you should read some of the literature that discusses this and this. But, but just for the sake of argument, I'm going to talk about man as being a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. Well, I think it's very important that that be ordered correctly in our being, that our body does not, so to speak, give the orders for our entire being. That we do not live after the desires of the body, whatever those desires might be, right? That the desire for sleep, that the desire for uh, recreation, that the desire for pleasure, that the desire for food. I, I mean, it's just important that our bodily desires do not command our life. And fasting can be very helpful just for the sake of keeping the flesh under discipline, of saying, listen, body, my spirit, and my soul are over you. Body, you will be subjected to my spirit and my soul. You're under them. I don't hate my body. I love my body. But it needs to be kept under subjection in the right place. Now, I think that's a very godly attitude, and fasting is something that reinforces it. Fasting is also helpful because when it's done right, it reflects a heart that is seeking after God with great passion. In one sense, fasting is to reflect an heart that is obsessed with God. Have you ever been uh, so obsessed with something that you forgot to eat? So obsessed with something that eating was not important? Big project, big thing to do at school, or you're so in love, right? Sometimes people like that, they go, oh, they're so in love. I didn't even think about food or this, that, all the other things, right? There are things that happen, or let's say this, your child is sick. Who can think about food at a time like this? My child's sick. There are certain things that come into our life that are so big, that are so dominating, that food becomes unimportant. Fasting, in a way, says, God, I want you to be that important to me. I want you to be so important to me that even food, it, it pales in importance, and this is my way of putting you first. So fasting is valuable on many different levels. Let me say one more thing about fasting is that it's important to see that fasting should not be perceived as a way to get God to do what you want him to do. You know, I've been praying about this and God won't do it. So I'm going to fast and that'll make God do it. No, no, no. Now listen, fasting obviously can be a great assistance in prayer, a great assistance in seeking God. There's no denying that. But it isn't because it convinces God to do something that he didn't want to do before. No, 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 no. Fasting is effective 
because it displays our faith, our seriousness of heart. It brings us into better alignment with the heart of God so that we can see and sense and understand his will better than others. Now, notice this. He says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. The hypocritical scribes and Pharisees wanted to make sure that everybody knew that they were fasting. So what did they do? They would, look at it right in here in the verses, they would have a sad countenance and they would disfigure their faces so that the agony of their fasting would be evident to everybody. Now, in, in the ancient practice of the Pharisees and the scribes and such, they would typically fast twice a week. It seems that the evidence tells us that they would practice this fasting on Thursday and on Monday because they, they were told, according to their traditions, that Thursday was the day that Moses went up to Mount Sinai and Monday was the day that Moses came down from Mount Sinai. And so in recognition of that, they would fast on Thursday and on Monday. And what would they do on Thursday and Monday? Well, they, they would even make themselves up, put up a little makeup on their face to make themselves look, you know, just sort of gaunt and hungry, and disheveled. And somebody would come up to him, well, what's wrong, brother? What's wrong with you? Oh, nothing. I'm just fasting unto the Lord. And everybody would go, oh, he's so spiritual. You know, and he's walking down the street, and he can hardly move. You know, brother, what's wrong? Are you sick? No, no, I'm not sick. I'm just fasting unto the Lord. Oh, look, he's so weak, but he's just doing it as unto God. And what did Jesus say of such hypocrisy? He says, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. When everybody would applaud for them and look at them and say, oh, aren't they spiritual? What wonderful men of God. Look at what they're doing. That's your reward right there. You're not fasting before God at all. Now, by the way, doesn't this tell us something? Just as much as you can give in a wrong way and have your reward be just before men, and you can pray in a wrong way and have your reward be just before men so you can fast in a wrong way and your reward will be just before men. And so what does Jesus say to do instead? He says, no, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to be men uh, before men to be fasting. In other words, act normal. It's a normal day. You, you, you're not out just, just doing, putting away all your normal obligations or acting like you can't do anything. No, 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 no. You do as much normal as possible. I would say this, if you're fasting, you know, the time that you would normally spend eating, why don't you spend that time in special prayer, right? Why don't you spend that time just seeking God in a special way? But other than that, make it a normal day. Jesus told us here, he said, take care of yourselves as usual and make the fast something of a secret before God. Now, I use that word advisedly, something of a secret before God. Because I've been in some awkward situations. I'm fasting for a day, let's say. And, and you know, uh, I'm in a situation where somebody will ask, well, aren't you going to have lunch? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, well, why, why don't you want to have lunch? Well, I, I can't tell you. Well, you know, and then it just gets weird. Well, what if, you know, is something wrong? Are you sick? No, no, no. And it just becomes more basic. I found it appropriate just to say, not in a flamboyant, you know, I'm just not eating today or I'm just fasting for today. Trying to do it the very best of your ability in a way that does not draw any attention to yourself. But sometimes by playing I've got a secret, it draws even more attention to it. The, the whole point of it is draw a little as attention to yourself as possible when you're performing spiritual duties. We don't do these things to be seen of men. We don't give to be seen of men. We don't pray to be seen of men. 
We don't fast to be seen of men. We do them out of obedience and devotion and commitment unto God. Now, in verse 19, we're going to sort of come into another section of the Sermon on the Mount. So I just want to wrap up with a few final thoughts here about this section that we started last week where Jesus talked about giving and about prayer and about fasting. We might consider these things to be spiritual disciplines, marks of a genuine spiritual life. And I think that for many people, these things are neglected in their Christian life. They don't give the way that they should give. They don't give as a matter of spiritual discipline. In other words, oh, you know, when, when the offering bag goes by in church, they might unthinkingly throw in a few coins or a few, you know, uh, bills or something. They may do that, okay, but they don't think. They don't think, this is part of my spiritual life. God, what do you want me to give? How can I give with the right heart? God, what do you want me to do? They don't take it seriously as a spiritual discipline. Other people don't take prayer seriously as a spiritual discipline. And certainly, many people, most Christians, might I say 98, 99% of Christians don't take fasting seriously as a spiritual discipline. But this is what I want you to understand. Did Jesus do these things? Did other great men and women of God do these things? You know, we look at the amazing spiritual life of men like the Apostle Paul or, or other great leaders. Or if you want to say, and I'm not trying to paint Jesus as just a moral example, but even the life of Jesus himself. We say, wow, what an amazing life they lived. But please, the spiritual life that they lived was based upon these spiritual disciplines that they practiced. And you can't separate that. If you want to be a great sports star, right? Let's say you want to be a great basketball player, okay? And you go to the basketball game and you see the professional basketball players play and you go, wow, that's so amazing. I want to be just like that. And you watch them at the game and you go, man, I'm just going to do that. So what do you do? You go out and you start trying to do just exactly what they do during the game. You know, that's not the way you're going to do it. Because how did they get to the level that they could do what they do at the game? Because they spent hours and hours and hours practicing. There's a hidden foundation of practice and discipline behind what you see out front. That's the way it should be in our spiritual lives too. What people see from our spiritual life should be built upon the foundation of a hidden secret relationship with God that's filled with spiritual discipline and following him. So we say, yes, I want to be a godly man or woman, but I'm not just looking at somebody in the game, so to speak. I want to look back and think, what do they live in their life as daily disciplines to bring them to that place? Now, transitioning from this place of talking about these basic spiritual disciplines of giving, prayer, and fasting, now in verse 19, Jesus begins a section where he's talking about the place of material things. Might I say, just before we head into this section, it's hard for me to think of a more relevant section to our modern age than Jesus speaking about material things. Because if there is ever an idol in the modern age, it's materialism. Now, I don't want to act as if previous ages weren't materialistic, but in our modern age, 
with our unbelievably prosperous lives and abundance that we enjoy, um, it's just very easy for us to adopt a very materialistic mindset. You know, when, when, when Jesus talks about materialism here, it's very easy for us to just think, well, that's for rich people. I'm not rich. Okay, well, okay, fine, you're not rich. You're not rich by the standards of modern society. But listen, aren't you rich compared to anybody that lived in Jesus' days? I would argue that in the days that Jesus lived, there were very, very few people who lived with the luxuries and comforts that you enjoy every day. Every day. Probably, I can't say this for certainty, probably not even Caesar upon his throne lived with the luxuries and comforts that you take for granted every day. You look at it from that perspective, materialism is something that each and every one of us have to think about. So verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, I like it how the phrasing is in the ancient Greek. According to some good commentators, the idea here is more literally, do not treasure for yourself treasures on earth. The idea is that earthly treasure is temporary and it's fading away. Moths can destroy it. Rust can destroy it. Thieves can break in and steal it. But heavenly treasure is secure. Just in the news right now, right? You have an unbelievable story about a man through a financial scheme stole $50 billion from investors. Not $50 million. Now that's a lot of money, $50 million. $50 billion he cheated investors out of. And how did he cheat them out of it? He appealed to their greed. It was over a long span of years, and he kept promising and delivering returns of 15% on their investments, unbelievable returns on their investment, and it just seemed building and building and building and building until it was all exposed as a gigantic fraud. And billions of dollars that people had invested were gone. Now listen, your treasures on earth can be taken away. Now please understand, the issue isn't that earthly treasures are somehow in themselves bad, but they are of no ultimate value either. Now if this is the case, then it's wrong for a disciple of Jesus to dedicate their lives to continually expanding their earthly treasures. You know, if you live your life for laying up treasure on earth, you're dooming yourself to a life of frustration and emptiness. You know, Regarding material things, the secret to happiness is not having more of them. The secret to happiness is finding contentment with what you have. Many years ago, well, it must be more than 15 years ago, in 1992, there was a survey. And they asked Americans, how much money would you need to live the American dream? Okay, So they asked people who earned $25,000. How much do you need to live the American dream? You know what they said? They said, you know, 
I'm going to need about $50,000 a year to live the American dream. Then they asked those who made $100,000 a year, how much money do you need to live the American dream? You know what they said? They said "Mm, about $200,000 a year, right? Every group that they polled, they said, how much money do I need to live the American dream? I need about double what I currently have. That's what people typically think. Now listen, you're never going to find the good life by thinking you need to double your income in order to have it. No, the secret is finding contentment instead. Listen, Jesus isn't telling us that it's wrong to possess earthly things, but it's wrong to, if you notice it, to lay it up for yourself. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. You're to hold any treasure on earth as a steward for God. I have this, but I don't own it. God owns it. I'm just the manager of it. Now, in contrast to that, he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Heavenly treasures are everlasting and incorruptible. Uh, Treasures in heaven give you enjoyment now in the sense of contentment and well-being that comes from being a giver. By the way, there is a unique joy in being a giver. There really is. When you have a giving heart, when you are free from greed and materialism and can give, there's a special joy that that person has. But listen, the ultimate enjoyment of heavenly treasure happens on the other side of eternity. Listen, it's true, isn't it? You can't take anything with you. They dig up these ancient graves, right? And what do they find? They find gold in the fingers of the old bones, right? You have people who put money, right, in the hands of people going into the afterlife. You have all these things that does no good, right? You can't take anything with you. Everything one might take with them to the world beyond is left behind. All those pharaohs buried in all those pyramids with all the riches and all the slaves, they left it all behind. And you know what? Even if you could take it, it wouldn't do you any good. What are you going to do? Lay down a 500 euro note in heaven and tell God to get you something? What are you going to show God some gold coins in heaven? You know what an angel would say to him? They'd say, this, we, we use this to pave the streets in heaven. This is nothing to us here. This is like asphalt to us up here. It's nothing. Now listen, instead, we should say, no, I'm going to use what I have right now to accomplish something good for eternity. You know, Jesus once told a parable that has troubled some people. He said it in Luke chapter 16. Spoke of a man who was a manager for a a, a master, okay? His master was a big, rich guy, and he was his manager. But the manager was dishonest, and he was about to be called to account. And so he knew that he was going to be fired. He had been stealing from his boss and stealing from the company, and the master said, hey, I want you to come on in. I'm going to look over the books. And the guy says, oh, no, I'm going to be caught. So what does he do? Knowing that he would be fired, he began to settle the accounts with his master's debtors at terms favorable to the debtors. It was like, you owe my master, you know, a a hundred dollars. Give me 50 and we'll call it even. So you give me 50, I write in the book, paid in full, and it's done. You're happy, I'm happy because I put the $50 in my pocket, not in my master's account. And then I say, when my master fires me, I'm your friend. And you let me stay at your house, you let me work for you or something like that. The dishonest manager 
is praised by Jesus in this parable. This bothers me. Why would Jesus praise such a dishonest man? Well, I'll tell you, the dishonest man was praiseworthy for two reasons. First, he knew that he would be called to account for his life, and he took that seriously. The books are going to be looked at, and I have to do something. So he acted that way. Secondly, he took advantage of his present position to arrange a comfortable future. He said, listen, I'm not fired yet. And while I'm still working with my boss, I'm going to do something that will make it better for me in the next place that I go. And that's exactly what he did. In the same way, we can use our material resources right now for eternal good, even though we can't bring them with us. And that's fascinating. Our material things will not pass from this life to the next, but the good that has been done for the kingdom of God through the use of our treasures will last for eternity. And the work God does in us through our faithful giving, that will last for eternity. But did you notice what Jesus said there in verse 21? I think it's a very sobering statement. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can only have your treasure and your heart in one place. You can't store up treasure on earth and in heaven at the same time. See, what Jesus is talking about is not so much your money. He's talking about your loyalty. Now, we have that choice. Treasure in heaven or treasure on earth. Now, there's another choice here in verses 22 and 23. The choice between two different visions or two different ways of looking at things. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Notice what he says. The lamp of the body is the eye. Simply the idea is that light comes into the body through the eye. If your eyes were blind, you would live in a dark world. The lamps would be out if your eye was blind. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. Now, this is very interesting because Jesus is using a figure of speech that's a little bit difficult for us to understand. It could have two meanings, or it could be that Jesus intended both of these meanings by this. A good eye can have the idea of a person being generous. A generous eye. Okay, that's one idea. The second idea is that the good idea has the good uh, eye has the idea of being single-minded. In other words, you're not split in your affections. Both of these principles apply towards the disciples' attitude towards material things. In other words, is it important to be generous in regard to material things? Absolutely. Being generous brings light into our lives. We're happier and we're more content when we have God's heart of generosity. But if we're not generous, it's as if your whole body will be full of darkness. Our selfish, miserly ways cast darkness over everything that we think or do. But then again, 
Being single-minded also brings light into our lives because we're happier and we're more content when we focus on the kingdom of God and His righteousness, knowing that all these material things are going to be added unto us. But when we're double-minded, it's as if our whole body is full of darkness. We're trying to live for two masters at the same time, and it puts a dark shadow over everything in our life. So here Jesus is drawing the contrast between being full of light and full of darkness. Jesus is telling us either our eye is dedicated towards heavenly things, if it is, it's full of light, or it's directed towards earthly things and it's full of darkness. You know, it's interesting. They would use this phrase to have a darkened eye or an evil eye to denote somebody who was envious or covetous. And Jesus is saying that we should not be like that. Now again, building on the analogy of the eye, Jesus reminds us that if we're blind in our eyes, the whole body is blind. The darkness is great in our whole body. In the same pattern, our attitude towards material treasure is either going to bring great light into your life or great darkness into your life. I want you to think about that. Your attitude towards material things makes a huge difference in your spiritual life. Huge. You can't get around that fact. It's a very important thing in the Christian life. Now, often a materialistic, miserly, selfish Christian, they'll justify their sin by saying something like this. Well, look, it's just one area of my life, right? Yeah, I know. You know, I, whatever, I, I'm greedy or I give or I just, I don't give. In other words... But even as the darkness of the eye affects everything in the body, so a wrong attitude towards material things brings darkness to our whole being. So Jesus builds on this point here in verse 24 where he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, serving two masters in the way that Jesus means here, it's not like working two jobs. Have you ever done that? I've worked two jobs. I used to work three jobs at one time. I used to work at a church. I used to work at a supermarket. I used to drive a school bus all at the same time. Okay, I had to work three jobs at one time. But if you have to do it, you have to do it. Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus has the master and slave relationship in mind, Right? And you can't be a slave that belongs to two different masters. Jesus tells us that serving two masters is a simple impossibility. And if you think that you're successfully serving two masters, you're deceived. It can't be done. You know, think about it. When ancient Israel struggled with idolatry, when they struggled with the worship of Baal, let's say, or Ashtoreth, they did not think... Okay? They did not think, I will now forsake Yahweh and I will now turn my attention to Baal. They didn't think that way. How did they think? They said, well, sure, I still like Yahweh. He's a good guy. Hooray for Yahweh. I'm just going to add a little bit of Baal into my life. And they thought they could serve two masters. What does God say? No. You may think you're serving two masters, but what would God say? You're not serving me. You see the difference? A lot of us think the same thing. We think that we can actually serve two masters. To be loyal to the one is to despise the other. And so, Jesus is making it very clear. We can't have two masters. 
You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, there's different opinions regarding the origin of the word mammon. Some people think that it was the name of a pagan god. Other people think that it comes from the Hebrew word aman, which means to trust or to confide because people want to trust in their wealth. Whatever its exact origin, the meaning is pretty clear. The word mammon is money, materialism, or wealth personified. And you can't serve materialism and God at the same time. Look, I want you to understand. Material things in themselves are morally neutral. If you have a lot of money, well, praise God. It's what you do with it that matters. You're you're not inherently righteous for being poor, nor are you inherently unrighteous for being rich. The whole thing is what do you do with your money? Jesus is talking about the heart here. Many people say that they love God. But their service of money shows that, in fact, they do not. How can you tell who or or what you're serving? Many people say, well, look, of course I'm a Christian. Look at my church attendance. Of course I'm a Christian. Listen, it, it would be a far better thing, perhaps, to look at your bank account to measure whether or not you're a Christian. What do you live for? It'll show in your bank account. Here's another principle to think about. You will sacrifice for your God. I think that's a principle that rings true. Whatever is your God in your life, you will make sacrifices for your God. And there are many people who consider themselves to be fine Christians, and they will sacrifice for the sake of making money, but they will not sacrifice for the sake of God. You will sacrifice for your God. I remember reading in the early 90s about a businessman in Los Angeles. He uh, died on the steps leading up to his office. And before he died of a gunshot wound to his chest, he called out the names of his three children. But he still had his $10,000 gold Rolex watch in his hand that he would not give up to the robber. He was the victim of a rash of watch robberies, and he was killed as a sacrifice to his God. You can take my life, but you'll never take my Rolex. That was his attitude. You know, um, this attitude of willingness to sacrifice for the sake of material things, but not for the sake of God, it's very troubling. But let me remind you of this. You don't have to be rich to serve mammon. It's a sobering thing to consider that the poor can be just as greedy and just as covetous as rich people can. So what does Jesus say? Now he's going to tell us to how to put material things in the right place in our life. Look at here, starting at verse 25. He says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Don't worry about it. You shouldn't get tangled up in thinking about the things of this world because our life is more than these things. Now think about it. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to put on? This 
these three questions, you could say, define the worldly existence. That's what people live for. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to put on? And listen, this is the way people think in the modern world. If you were to add one thing, what will I do to entertain myself? I guess those four questions. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? And what am I going to do to entertain myself? That is the spirit of the modern age. Instead, Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry. Do not have an ungodly, untrusting worry. Stop worrying. Now, be concerned about some things. Jesus is going to tell you about what to be concerned about in a little bit. But listen, don't worry. Is not life more than food, Jesus says, and the body more than clothing? The worry that Jesus spoke of lowers man to the level of an animal who is only concerned with his physical needs. Your life is more than that, and you have eternal things to pursue. So, so don't worry. Why don't worry? Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You know, God does a pretty good job providing for the birds. He takes care of them. And Jesus says, if God takes care of the birds... He'll take care of you. The birds don't worry, right? I don't know that I've ever seen a worried look on a bird's face. (laughs) Birds don't worry. But notice this. Birds don't worry, but they do work. You don't see the bird just sitting on the branch, right? Lifts up its beak towards heaven, opens its mouth. Ah, okay, God, drop a worm down, you know, from heaven. No, no, no. God says, hey, birds, I've given you plenty of food. It's in the worms, in the ground. It's all over the place. Go get it. Go get your food. And God provides for them. And please understand, Jesus is saying, yes, God will take care of the birds. You don't have to worry. He will take care of you. Are you not of more value than they? By the way, wouldn't you say that the worry that many people have over material things is rooted in in a low understanding of their value before God. They don't understand how much God loves them, how much God values them. Jesus also says, worrying, not only is it unnecessary, I don't want to put words in Jesus' mouth, he probably wouldn't appreciate that I said this, but Jesus is telling us, worry is just dumb. It's stupid. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Now, by the way, There's debate in the original Greek whether Jesus is talking about making somebody taller or lengthening somebody's life. Either one is true, right? Can you add one year to your life by worrying? No, you're going to take years off your life. Can you make yourself any taller by worrying? No, it's absolutely impossible. You can add nothing to your life by worrying. You know, there are greater sins than worrying. 
But I don't know if there's any more self-defeating and useless sins than worry. So take a look around. If God so clothes the grass of the field, then he will certainly take care of you. You can be confident of the power and the care of a loving heavenly father. Did you notice what Jesus says at the very end there, verse 30? Oh, you of little faith. Let me say this. Little faith is not a little fault. It's a big fault. Having little faith should not be tolerated. It wrongs the Lord. It it grieves our minds. To think that the same God who takes care of the birds and the flowers and the grass of the field will forsake his own children, that's shameful. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, Oh, little faith, learn better manners. It's just impolite to not trust God that way. Could you imagine that? A little child going up to God? Excuse me, a little child going up to his father, right? Father, I'm worried. I'm worried because I read the economic news and I think that things are really bad in the world economy. And I'm not sure, is there going to be food for me to eat tomorrow? The father said, yes, son, don't worry about it. I'm worrying about those things. You don't have to worry about them at all, right? I'm your father. I'll make sure your needs are provided for. The child stays awake all night Is there going to be food for me tomorrow? I heard that, you know, the stock market was down so many hundreds of points. Oh, is there going to be food? And you would say, what a foolish child, right? Child, don't worry about it. You have a loving father who will worry about those things for you. And after a while, you would have to say, child, you are disrespecting your father. The father says to the child, no, really, son, trust me. I'm going to feed you tomorrow. And the son says, I'm trying really hard to believe you, Dad, but I just don't know if I can. Well, listen, that's an insult to the father. Of course, the child should just rest in the father's goodness and the father's provision. And so should we. Verse 31, therefore, do not worry. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Jesus here invites us to know a freedom from the worry and the anxiety that comes from an undue concern about material things. You can be free. Listen, there may be things in your life that are worth worrying about. But God's care and God's provision for you is not one of them. I think that we can have the same kind of heart that Jesus wants us to have and that we're just trusting in God, we're thankful for what he provides, and we trust that he's going to be a good provider. Like the birds, right? We'll work. Oh, yes, we'll work. But we'll trust that our Heavenly Father will provide for us. Isn't it powerful what Jesus said here? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Jesus contrasted the life of those who do not know God. They're separated from him. That was the Gentiles in Jesus' day. He says, listen, we should not be like those who do not know God and do not trust him. We should instead be like those who know God and receive his loving care. Those who know God should seek after other things. What should we seek after? Look at verse 33. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Isn't that wonderful? I'm so glad that Jesus said this. Because Jesus didn't say, hey man, don't worry about it. God will provide everything for you. And you go, oh, hallelujah. I'm going to go lay down on the couch with a remote control in my hand, and I'm just going to watch sports 24 hours a day. God's going to provide for me. Hey, praise the Lord, right? I just, yes, there I am. Okay, God, anytime you want to provide, that's great. I'm not going to worry, Lord. I'm not going to worry. And she said, no, 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 no. No. Don't worry, but do seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This must be the rule of our life when we order our priorities. Now, now, don't think that this is just another priority to fit on top of our list of priorities. You know, okay, here are the priorities of my life, okay? Uh, I've got my wife, I've got my kids, I've got my job, I've got my hobbies, I've, I've got my mom and dad, I've got all these different things in my life. Okay, God, here's my list, and God, you go right at the top of the list. You're number one on my list of priorities, God. No, 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 I don't think that's it. In Everything we do, we seek first the kingdom of God. You see, as I love and minister to my wife, I seek first the kingdom of God. When I'm with my children, I seek first the kingdom of God. When I'm at my work, I seek first the kingdom of God. It's something that I do in everything I do. You know, we rarely have to choose between honoring God and loving our wives. We rarely have to choose between honoring God and pleasing our boss. Now, there's some times when you have to do that, right? But very seldom. We honor God and we seek first the kingdom of God by being good husbands, by being good wives, by being good workers, by being good at whatever we do. And by the way, we should remember this statement in its immediate context. Jesus is reminding us that our physical well-being is not big enough, it's not worthy enough for us to give our lives to. If you think that your physical well-being is worthy enough for you to live your life for, then your God is mammon. Your life is cursed with worry. And you live life too much like an animal. You're concerned mostly with your physical needs. By the way, notice, Jesus didn't tell them to just stop worrying. You know, sometimes that's our advice to people, right? You're worrying. Stop it. Stop that worrying. It's really hard hard to stop worrying. What's much easier is to replace your worry with a greater concern. Replace your worry with a greater concern for the kingdom of God. It's very true that a habit or a passion can usually only be given up for a greater habit or a greater passion. And so what does Jesus say? Get up off the couch and seek first the kingdom of God. And then God promises that he'll meet all your needs. You you make yourself a commitment to find the will of God, to do the will of God. Make yourself one with his purposes, one with the advancement of his kingdom. And you know what? He will take care of you. If you make yourself his servant, right? That means you have obligations to him, right? Okay, God, I'm your servant. 
I'm going to live the way you want me to, and I'm going to do what you want me to. I'll order my life the way you want me to. Okay, great. But do you understand that when you are his servant, he is your master? I know that's not terribly profound, but you get the point I'm making here. A servant has obligations to the master, right? But a master has obligations to the servant. A master is obliged to take care of his servant. If you're going to be my slave, I've got to give you a place to live. If you're going to be my slave, I've got to make sure you got food. If you're going to be my slave, I've got to provide the basic necessities of life for you. You're my slave. You have obligations to me, but I have obligations to you. You see what Jesus is saying? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. That's the choice. The fundamental choice to seek first the kingdom of God. You could say that that is a choice that everybody makes when they repent and are converted, right? When you gave your life to Jesus Christ, wasn't that a decision that you were going to seek first the kingdom of God? Okay, Lord, no more. I don't want to live my life for myself anymore. No, Lord, I'm going to seek first you and your king. Yet, don't you think every day after that, our Christian life either reinforces that decision or it denies that decision. It's a wonderful thing. If you put God's kingdom first, then you can enjoy all things. He promises you a heavenly treasure. He promises you rest in what he provides for you. He promises you fulfillment of God's highest purpose for man. That's fellowship with him and being part of his kingdom All of those things shall be added unto you. Look, I don't want to be too simplistic. But couldn't many counseling sessions begin with this? All right, you tell me your problems, and I want to hear them, and I give you all my sympathy, I give you all my concern. Now, let's come down to an issue here. Are you really seeking first God's kingdom? You see, I feel like there's so much missing. I feel like I lack so much. I feel that I'm so empty. I just need something that I'm not satisfied with this. Jesus said that if you seek his kingdom first, he'd add all those other things unto you. Let's focus on seeking his kingdom first and then trust that he's going to provide these other things. Now, I'm not trying to say that that would close every counseling session. But isn't that a great first step to look at? Isn't that a great place to start? So, okay, let's make sure we're doing this first, and then we'll take a look at other things. But let's make sure that's first. All right, final verse, verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's almost like this. It's almost like Jesus saying, okay, look, I know that you people find it so easy to worry. You you almost feel like you have to worry. Okay, great. If you're going to worry, only worry about the things for today. I'll let you worry about that. But don't you dare worry about anything for tomorrow. You know, most of our worry is over things that we have absolutely no control over anyway, right? And so that worry is foolish and it's harmful. Instead, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Live for the present day. Now, it's not wrong to remember the past. It's certainly not wrong to plan for the future. 
to some degree, both of those are good. Yet isn't it easy to become too focused on either the past or too focused upon the future and to let the day and its own trouble be ignored? God does want us to remember the past. God does want us to plan for the future. But he wants us to live in the present. And that's a good question for all of us. Don't you live in the past? And don't you live in the future either? Live in the present. Remembering the past and planning for the future, but your feet are planted squarely in the present. You know, I have to say as we finish up for tonight, you take a look at what Jesus says. First of all, it's so sensible, isn't it? Is there anything that we've read here tonight and said, well, Jesus, come on. What are you talking about? This is so profoundly sensible that you cannot read this without being attracted to it, without saying, this is it. This is how I should order my life when it comes to material things. Not living my life for material things, not worrying about material things, but putting God's kingdom first and living in the present. I think this is what it's like when the kingdom of God comes into our life. It will not allow us to have another God such as materialism, but it really guides us back to serving our Lord his kingdom, his righteousness right now in the present. So, Father, that is our prayer, that we would be able to do that. Um, no, Lord, these are things that you have to work in our hearts by the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would do that. We yield ourselves before you. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for the materialism that's in our lives. We pray that you'd show us how to be people who give the way that we should. We ask, Lord, that you would show us as well, God, how to put uh, the place of worry uh, in its proper place. And that is just to give up on worry. Instead, Lord, I just want to seek you in your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to do it, each and every one of us, and to bring you a lot of glory by living lives that really look like they've been touched by your kingdom. We want to do this, Lord, and bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.